Well, we continue um, this day looking at the book of Acts and um, really listening to how it speaks to us in our time. I like to remind us as we think about the book of Acts to, to be reminded that these first followers of Jesus didn't after Jesus' resurrection go off and create their own religion or their own denomination. Uh, but I like for us to remember if we're going to understand this book of Acts and what's going on, we need to be reminded that these first disciples were Jewish people. They were working within their Jewish faith because they understood Jesus to be the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of a Messiah. And so what they were doing in their time was that they uh, were um, hoping to convince other Jewish people that Jesus indeed was the Messiah that they had awaited for. But in order to do that, uh, they had to get people to begin to think about things differently than the way they had always thought about what the Messiah might be. And so in reality, in the midst of Acts, we see a, a world, at least the Jewish world, which was disrupted and disoriented as this group of folks sought to uh, tell them there was another way to understand what it meant to be the people of God. Uh, that indeed the, the one who was the Messiah, the one who was the way, had already come. And so uh, they are seeking to proclaim and demonstrate um, that indeed the kingdom of God has come near, just as Jesus had said, um, that God's kingdom was breaking into their world, calling folks to reorient and to turn back to God and to his ways. And telling them that this was the time in which the Spirit had been poured out upon the people of God so that they might be the people of God. And we've uh, spent um, a few weeks here looking at the first four chapters of Acts. And today we're going to uh, read again from chapter 4 and then pick up in chapter 5 as we hear this story, which um, I think we're all familiar with. But it's often a story that we just like to jump over. Uh, because we're not sure what to do with this. But I want to begin reading first in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. And I would argue that from verse 32, really all the way to uh, chapter 6, that these uh, passages kind of fall together. But um, here are these words from um, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine about any of their possessions, but they held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them. There were no needy persons among them. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them. They would bring the proceeds from the sales, and they would place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles. And then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. And I just want to pause there and let those words sink in. Um, oftentimes we read these summaries in Acts and we hurry past them. But this gives us a picture of what the early uh, community of Jesus' followers looked like. 
It tells us that they were a community that, that had this unity, this oneness of mind and heart. And that all surfaced around sharing and giving witness to the resurrection of Jesus and to the life that he offered. Uh, but it also emphasizes here how they handled their possessions, doesn't it? Um, I, I don't know how we read this passage, and we do not hear um, emphasized over and over uh, that the early followers in some ways uh, shared um, what they had with one another. They shared what they had, and we are told that those with uh, property, some of them would sell their possessions, they would give it to the apostles, and it was distributed to people as they needed. Now, it's important for us to hear this because what follows is a couple of examples. If, we are, um, if we're paying attention, what follows after this is a couple of examples. A positive example and then the negative example that we would all prefer to skip over. Um, but here are these words then, continuing in verse 36. Here's the, the positive example that um, Luke offers in this passage. Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, that is, one who encourages, was a Levite from Cyprus. He owned a field, sold it, brought the money, and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Does that sound familiar? Uh, just what we heard that the community was doing as a whole, and now we see this example of an individual who is doing exactly um, what the summary statement says the early church was doing. So all is wonderful, right? Then we get to chapter 5. And um, I think we ought to just skip verses 1 through 11 here and just move on. What do you all think? Well, maybe not. It's good for us also to hear these negative examples. And, and so um, while we have uh, this wonderful example of uh, Barnabas, who we're going to hear about later, we have this other example. And beginning in verse 5, it says, However, a man named Ananias along with his wife, Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, they withheld some of the proceeds from the sale. And they brought the rest of it, and they placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. And Peter, who speaks, I guess, for the rest of the disciples, he, he asked, and he says, Ananias... How is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of the land? Wasn't that property yours to keep? After you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do whatever you wanted to? What made you think of such a thing? You haven't lied to other people, but to God." And when Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Everyone who heard this conversation was terrified. And we get it because we're terrified just to hear this story. What do we do with this? It, tells, it goes on to say, some young men stood up, they wrapped his body, they carried him out, and they buried him. And about three hours later, 
Along comes his wife, um, but she didn't know what had happened to her husband. And so Peter asked her, he says, tell me, did you and your husband receive this price for the field? I guess this was her opportunity to come clean. But she responds, yes, that's the amount. And he replied, how could you scheme with each other to challenge the Lord's spirit? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out too. And at that very moment, she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men entered and found her dead, they carried her out and they buried her also. Trepidation and dread seized the whole church and all who heard what had happened. We'll look at the rest of this in a minute, but we're just going to um, stop right here at this passage. And, and um, Dustin, can you turn me down just a little bit? I think it's a little bit loud in here, so if you could do that a little bit. Um, what do we do with this passage of Scripture? What in the world do we do with this? I mean, we're good if we stop with Barnabas bringing gifts and laying them at the feet. And, and we would probably even be good if Ananias and Sapphira uh, brought their stuff and, and laid it, brought their, their proceeds and laid it at the feet of the disciples. And then where they were challenged, um, maybe they um, were disciplined, but they fall dead. I mean, this is a shocking story, and I think it's purposefully placed here to be shocking. We would prefer to pass over this and not really grapple with this passage, but I think we need to pause and do so. Uh, now, this whole passage, there's no doubt this whole passage um, does deal with how we think about and how we relate to our possessions. And I've heard uh, many of the sermons on this passage which um, always uh, challenge us to hold our possessions a little bit more loosely and to share with the church. And, and I think certainly um, that is a, a valid understanding of this scripture. I've also heard this scripture uh, taught in in a way that emphasizes God's judgment. But I want to suggest that maybe there's another way to hear this passage that gets at the underlying issue. And that's to hear this passage um, as talking about community. Of talking about the importance of community. And I suspect that this is actually a harder um, lesson and message for us to hear than even a message about um, how we grasp a hold of our possessions. For you see, um, we live in a society that emphasizes individualism above everything else. We emphasize the rights and the freedoms of individuals. And in fact, we have so often read Scripture in an individualistic way. Even when we talk about uh, salvation, um, even when we talk about conversion, we often make it a personal experience with God or with Jesus and leave it at that alone. In doing so, we miss the communal emphasis of Scripture. 
we miss this um, communal, this community aspect of Scripture that goes uh, from the front cover to the back cover. For you see, all of Scripture reveals and continues to point out that God wanted to be in community with people, not just individuals. That God invites people to be in community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and one another. Look at the creation story. When God creates Adam and Eve, he tells them to multiply. He tells them to create a community and to live in union with God and to have dominion over all of the world and all of creation. Uh, At the very beginning, God is not just creating individual people, but God is seeking to create community, people who live in harmony with God and with one another. Look at the story of Abraham. When God calls Abraham, he doesn't just call Abraham to be one person who lives according to God's ways. But he tells Abraham that you, your descendants, will become the people of God. That your descendants will be the people of God. They will be a community of people who are blessed so that other people might be blessed. We see this, this calling and this forming of community. Throughout Scripture, we see God over and over again calling people into a new community, calling people to new loyalties and to new ways of being in the world. And in Acts, we see this ongoing call to community if we're paying attention. We see that Jesus did this with his disciples, and we see its continuation in the, in the book of Acts. We see God calling and creating this new people, empowering them by the Holy Spirit, calling them to live um, according to new categories, calling them to new allegiances and to a new way of life, a way that embodies God and God's ways. And in fact, if we pay attention in the book of Acts, Um, When we see um, these conversions, when we see people converted, when we see uh, uh, people switching their allegiance, it's not just about individual acts, but it is about people who have this experience with the Spirit, and they become a part of a new community. They become a part of this community, which in Acts chapter 2, it tells us they become a part of a a community that devotes itself to the teaching of the apostles, to the community, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And sometimes I think in our society, we miss just how radical this change was. 
You see, in the first century, people were defined by their family. They were defined by who the patriarch or the matriarch was. They were defined by family, and that's where their allegiance was. And what we see over and over in uh, the New Testament is we see this call. We see this call that says your primary allegiance is no longer to your ancestors, but it is to Jesus. Your primary and and highest most allegiance is to be toward Jesus. And it is to be a part of a community in in which you continue to grow in your knowledge and your experience of God in which uh, people continue uh, to grow in their witness to the world of what God has done. And so if we begin to see this passage uh, about the importance of community, maybe we begin to look at Ananias and Sapphira's story in a different way. It wasn't just that they held back a portion of what uh, they had sold, but it is that they were pretending. It it was um, that they were a double-minded people. They had broken the trust of the community. In other words, they had said in essence by their behaviors that they're not sure they could trust this community of followers enough to give everything that they had sold. They had better hold some back for themselves just in case this community of Jesus' followers wasn't enough to sustain them. Just in case they needed to return to their old way of living instead of living in this new way. You see, they weren't just cheating the community out of resources but they were expressing their inability or their unwillingness to place their trust in this community and to place their trust in Jesus with a wholehearted being. And so maybe, you know, I find it interesting in the passage. It doesn't say uh, that Peter said, so drop dead. It doesn't even say that God caused them to. It says both of them just dropped dead on the spot. I just can't help but wonder if what happened in both of them is that this struggle in their hearts, this divided heart in which they couldn't quite decide whether they wanted to follow Jesus or whether they wanted to hold on to their old ways. I wonder if they couldn't resolve that and it's simply burst their heart and they fell dead there. Because you see, over and over again, we see that divided hearts and inability to give a full allegiance to God does indeed hinder community of faith and it does indeed hinder our ability to tap into the life that God offers. And it says fear and trepidation filled the community of faith. I'm sure it did. 
Because you see, I, I think part of, of this message is also highlighting the fact uh, that committing ourselves to follow Jesus, it's a dangerous thing. And, and he goes on in chapter 5. I find this interesting in chapter 5 in, in verse 12. After they carry Sapphira out, um, it, Luke just goes on and says, Oh, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. They would come together regularly at Solomon's porch. That's a place in the temple. I suspect that's where they were gathering with um, Ananias and Sapphira, but I don't know that. And, and, then, and then verse 13 says, No one from outside the church dared to join them, even though the people spoke highly of them. And yet then in 14 it says, but indeed, more and more believers in the Lord, large numbers of both men and women, were added to the church. These two things seem to conflict, don't they? On one hand, it says they wouldn't stand with him. And on the other hand, it says they were, uh, people were added to the church. I can't help but wonder uh, what is being depicted here is that people were not, um, they weren't flippant in joining the church. They, maybe they didn't want to be too close to them when they were at Solomon's porch because um, they were worried about uh, the persecution that came from outside the church. But maybe they were also afraid that if they made this commitment only half-heartedly, that the same thing that happened to Ananias and Sapphira might happen to them. And yet we're told for those who were able to get past that, Large numbers of people were added to the church daily. So despite that danger, there were people who were being added to this community of faith. There were people who continued to dedicate themselves to Jesus and to this community of Jesus followers so that um, the grace and the love of Jesus could be communicated and demonstrated and proclaimed throughout the world. But it was important for them to be in unison and of one heart in order to be most effective, especially early on in this movement. Now, we're going to read later in the letters of Paul where we had other issues. There were other issues in the community of faith, and people didn't drop dead. I can't explain to you why Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead and other people didn't, but I think the point of this story... The point of this story is to highlight the importance of community and commitment to this new allegiance and this new way of life. I couldn't help as I, as I read this passage this week and I began, so, so what do we do with this passage today? I mean, how do we apply this to the church today? Does this mean that we should all go live in some kind of socialist community where we sell everything and put it? Probably not. But I need to struggle with that in this individualistic and capitalistic uh, um, culture in which I've lived and, and been brought up. Uh, maybe I need to hear that passage and have it challenge me about what it means to be a community of God today. But one thing I do think is I think about this passage. Um, most churches that I know of today, 
um, especially in, um, in the Western society, we really don't understand community. We talk about the church as being a family, and we talk in terms like that. Uh, but um, in reality, I find that most churches are just a gathering of a bunch of individuals who call themselves Christians. That church is this space where people who call themselves Christians or people who are Christians, people who have experienced God, um, gather together not to form community so much as to kind of be loosely connected in a network. We gather together to, to hear the word, um, to take it under advisement, and then to go do our own thing. So often in the local church today, when we um, say our vows of membership, when we pledge to, um, to support the church with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness, so often those are said so loosely and glibly without any real commitment. And so often today, I think, when we gather in churches, when we, um, when we begin to follow Jesus, we don't really intend to give up our old allegiances and our old ways. If we're honest with ourselves, we're much like Ananias and Sapphira in that we want to hedge our bets, don't we? If we're honest with ourselves, we are just, as fearful about wholeheartedly committing to Jesus and his ways as Ananias and Sapphira were. We want a, a, a little bit of Jesus to affirm who we are and what we do, but we don't want enough of Jesus to challenge who we are or to challenge those things in our lives that still need to be transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. We just want enough of Jesus so we've got some certainty that when we die, we go to heaven, but not enough of Jesus that our allegiance and our way of life is truly transformed. And so we are double-minded and we grasp to our old ways way, way too much. As I grapple with this passage, I can't help but wonder, what would it look like if local congregations and churches today were committed to being communities of Jesus' followers, at least along the lines of the early followers of Jesus in the book of Acts? Because if we're honest with ourselves, our first allegiance is really seldom to God. Our first allegiance is to something else. Some other group shapes us and forms us more than a community of faith does. 
If we're honest with ourselves, often today when we gather in a local community of faith, we are really looking for a community that will affirm what we believe. We're looking for a community that says, we don't have to change, you've got it right, and and what you believe is the correct thing. And when we're in a community of faith that challenges our beliefs... We often start looking for another community of faith that will agree with us rather than allowing the Word of God to challenge us and to change us and to transform us. The most dangerous churches that exist are the churches that are filled with people who think they have arrived And everybody else just needs to get on board with them. Because you see, all of us, every body of Christ continues to need the Holy Spirit to work within us, to shape us, and to form us. To continue to transform our allegiance so that we are truly, truly aligned with God first and foremost. Much of our problem in the Western world is we have bodies of Christ, bodies of Christ which continue to divide us as we proclaim we have the right answers and everyone else is wrong. I wish I had more answers than questions. What should the body of Christ look like today? What should the the church of Jesus Christ look like today? Certainly it should be more than a bunch of individuals gathering once a week on Sunday to hear the word of God and then going out and doing their own thing or maybe getting together occasionally to do a good deed. Surely it should be more than that. I can't help but wonder what would happen if instead of being individuals who gathered together, if we truly sought to create community. If we truly sought to create this body of people that more than anything else want to know God more and more, and in doing so know each other more and more. I wonder what might happen if as a body of believers we were committed to uh, growing in our experience and knowledge of God's grace. So that we allowed that grace to continue to shape us and form us as individuals and as a community. I wonder what might happen if we gathered as a community and we um, were intent on praying for God to help us discover our gifts and our giftedness both as individuals and as a community. I wonder what would happen 
If communities of God's people gathered together and they offered up that prayer uh, from um, Acts chapter 4 that the early disciples gathered up and, and just simply prayed to God, acknowledging the raging of the world, understanding uh, that they, in their connection with Jesus, had that which could bring healing and hope and wholeness, not to themselves, but to the whole world, and would pray that God would give his people a confidence and a boldness to step forward and to share and to demonstrate the ways of Jesus. I wonder what would happen if we truly gathered together as a community and said more than anything else, we want to become people who live and love like Jesus. And we are not going to be happy and satisfied until we see that we are making progress toward that. Whatever the church is, Acts and Scripture seem to clearly show that the church is intended to be a community that enables us to know God, to grow in God and be changed and transformed and discover how God calls us together as a people to demonstrate his love and his grace in this world. And when that happens, not only will our lives be changed, not only will we be a different kind of community, the world will be changed also. May it be so in our midst this day and in the midst of churches across the world as we seek the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit this day and every day. Amen. And now I invite you, as, um, as we sing our last song, I invite you all um, to um, just reflect. Reflect on what God is calling you to do and who is God is calling you to be and how God might be calling you to help us form um, authentic authentic communities of Jesus' followers. And I invite you at this time also uh, to, um, to share of your offerings and your tithes, whether it's here and drop them in the offering plate or whether you're at home. You are invited to share and to participate. You don't have to go sell everything and bring the proceeds to my feet to be distributed. But I trust that you'll have a conversation with God and that you hold your hands open and that you ask God, what is it he wants you to share with this community of faith so that we might be a faithful witnesses to God's goodness in our world?